Hey, Misfits, this is Kate, and I'm here to tell you that Kevin and I are going to be taking a little holiday break uh, because we're super stressed out. And what that means for you is that you'll be getting a Patreon freebie. It's actually a two-parter, but you're going to get both parts this week. My guest co-host on these episodes is Matt. And once these episodes air, you will not have an episode the week of December 25th or the week of the new year. And then after that, we'll be back. So happy holidays, everybody. And we'll see you next year. Hello, Murderinos. This is Kate. And this is Matt. Welcome to Horrorwood. Horrorwood. That? Did you like that horror wood? I really liked it. I kind of want you to do that on every episode. Oh, cool. Great. Oh, Frankie was helping just then too. <laughs> she sure was. She's she's helped a lot today, shall she's, we say? She's having some big feelings. She's really in those feelings today. Some big feelings for a small dog. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a problem. Oh boy. Love her, but need her yeah. to bring it down a, a yep. notch or 10. Yep. She needs like a two hour play date. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for being here, Matt. Of course. Um, not that Happy. I gave you any choice. <laughs> that's that's correct. Thank you for acknowledging <laughs> that I've been forced against my will to participate in Horrorwood. I said, you're doing this episode. Horrorwood. I like it. I think I've been really wanting to do this episode for a while, and it's one that people have requested. And I I wanted to do it for the Patreons because, or the Patronians. I know it's patrons, people. Don't at me. I like Patronians. Yeah, I like Patronians too. Because uh, I I wanted to give you all something special. I haven't had a new episode for you in a while, and that sucks. Um, and you're our biggest supporters. And so I want to give you guys a good one. And I think Phil Hartman is a really good one. Ooh, that is a really good one. Yes, it's going to be a two-parter. And I know some people are like, wah, wah. but there's so much there. And I really want to give his backstory. And I really personally like to know like why someone acts the way they do and kind of, you know, how they got to where they did, that sort of thing. So I'll go ahead and tell you part one. We're going to talk about his childhood, growing up, his move to California, going through school, his hobbies, getting started in his career, his relationships. And then in part two, we'll go a little further into his career and into his last marriage and ultimately his death. So... I know some of you are some freaks out there and you just want to hear about the murder. I understand that. So if that's your thing and you don't want to hear all the backstory, skip this part and we'll be back next week with part two. But if you're like me and you want all the details and keep listening. I want all the details, so I will keep listening. Well, you have to. 
<laughs> well, dang it. <laughs> Phil Hartman is one of those deaths that unfortunately I think falls into that category of I remember explicitly what I was doing, where I was, what was happening. Mm-hmm. It was so unexpected. Yeah. Well, along with like Michael Jackson, um, you know, th- those kind of deaths. Mm-hmm. I felt that way about John Ritter, too. I remember exactly where I was when John Ritter died. Yeah. This was one that that was so shocking and just kind of stopped me where I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one saw it coming. This month will be the 25th anniversary of his murder. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. But yeah, he was murdered on May 28th. So we are coming up on that quickly. And it's been 25 years. Wow. Before we get into that, let's talk about who he was when he popped into this world on September 24th, 1948. His parents gave him the name Philip Edward Hartman, and he was born in the small city of Brantford, Ontario in Canada. He's Canadian. I never heard of Brantford before I started my research for this episode, Uh but... It produced several well-known people. It's where Wayne Gretzky was born. Okay. It was once the home to Alexander Graham Bell. So Brantford's like, it's got a little resume going on. Yeah, yeah. Phil was the fourth of eight kids. So he was right in the middle there. Growing up, he had the nickname Fippy. That's what his family called him. So he's a little (laughs) Fippy Hartman. And they didn't have a lot of money. Not shocking. There were a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah, yeah. Phil's parents, Doris and Rupert, both worked full-time. Rupert was a traveling salesman for Coca-Cola, and Doris ran a beauty parlor out of their home before eventually relocating her business to another building. Their home was pretty small. It was a little cottage that was 100 years old. And at first, it only had two bedrooms, but Doris and Rupert added a bathroom and more bedrooms as more kids came along. That is tiny. Yeah, it was really tiny, especially in the neighborhood that they were in, because all of the houses around them were much grander, much more upscale. Mm -hmm. Phil's older sister, Martha, said that they were the poorest people in the neighborhood. Multiple kids are sharing one room as a bedroom. Their, Their cottage was kind of out of place. In this neighborhood. But Doris and Rupert wanted to give the appearance that they were just as well off as their neighbors. So they always dressed really nice. I mean, dressed to the nines. I'm going to post a picture. They are dapper. They belonged to a country club. But Phil's older brother, John, said they probably weren't fooling anybody. He's pretty sure everyone knew that they did not have a lot of cash. According to John, their mother, Doris, was the one running the show. She was in charge. She was a self-taught painter and sketch artist, and she would sometimes display her work at the beauty parlor to sell to her clients. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was very entrepreneurial. She was always coming up with ways to make money, and she was tough. You did not want to mess with Doris. (laughs) Rupert, on the other hand, he was more laid back. He was reserved, but he was a heavy drinker. He kept it pretty hidden, though, like very few members of the family even knew about it. But it did cause a strain in the marriage behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. as it would. I mean, yeah, just a couple years after Phil was born, Doris's great uncle Hubert called her up. He was living in Detroit and he was a huge University of Michigan fan. 
That following January in 1951, the University of Michigan Wolverines were going to play the California Golden Bears in the Rose Bowl. And Hubert said, hey, Doris, do you and Rupert want to go with me to Pasadena? And Doris was like, uh, I would love to do anything to get away from all these kids, but we have no money and a vacation is out of the question. But Hubert, who is a successful businessman, said, don't worry about the money. Just drive here and then we'll all drive out to California together. So Doris and Rupert left the kids and met up with great uncle Hubert. When they got to California, Doris and Rupert were like, holy shit, this sunshine, (laughs) these palm trees, we want to live here. So as soon as they got back home to Canada, they started planning how they could make this move happen. They started telling all their friends, hey, California is the most amazing place. We're going to live there. It's the stuff dreams are made of. And their excitement was so contagious that some of their friends packed up and moved there. Wow. He must have been a very good salesman. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was. Not only could he sell Coca-Cola, he could sell California. And sometimes when a couple is, you know, really happy and really excited and they're feeling good, Uh-oh. that can lead to a little hanky-panky. And it wasn't long before Doris found out she was pregnant yet again. That fall, she gave birth to her fifth child, Sarah Jane. So with the arrival of the new baby, the Hartmans were going to have to postpone their dream for a bit. They were a little busy. Mm -hmm. Sarah Jane was born with a rare neurogenetic disorder, which at the time didn't even have a name yet. It would later be called Angelman syndrome. Some of the characteristics of it include language difficulties, hyperactivity, frequent laughing and smiling, hand flapping, and stunted intellectual growth. She had a highly compromised immune system. The smallest draft would make her sick. And when she got sick, she would go into convulsions and they'd have to get her to the hospital. Oh, my. It was intense. Her food had to be specially prepared because she had an underdeveloped swallowing reflex. She couldn't she couldn't really swallow food unless Mm -hmm. I think it had to be kind of liquefied. And she couldn't feed or dress herself. Because doctors didn't even know what this was at the time, no hospital was equipped to care for her. And even if they had been, the Hartmans didn't really have the money for round-the-clock medical care. So Doris made the decision to keep Sarah at home and care for her herself. In a home with that many kids, it can be difficult to get attention. Phil's older sister Martha said that in order to get noticed, you had to either be a problem or you had to be really great. Mm-hmm. Phil was neither of these. He was pretty shy and quiet. John, the oldest boy, he was the star. He was athletic, good-looking, full of confidence. Girls loved him. And it was pretty evident that he was Doris's favorite. She would even secretly give him money, despite the fact that they were struggling to make ends meet. Then there was Sarah Jane, who needed constant care. Yeah. So Phil was kind of ignored growing up. He was an observer. He'd kind of just quietly hang in the background and watch all the chaos around him. And he wasn't really old enough to hang with the oldest kids. So he'd just carry his little brown teddy bear around that he named Jackie. Or he'd play with a family dog. His name was Mike. Mike the dog. (laughs) Solid dog name. I love it. I love a dog name that's just a a flat out basic human name. It's like uh, Anthony Rizzo, his dog Kevin. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) 
but Phil desperately craved his mom's attention. So as a way to try to connect with his mom, Phil took up art. That was one of her passions. So he got really into drawing, building model cars, and he was laser focused and a bit of a perfectionist. He had a really strong work ethic, which I think came from seeing his parents work so hard. Mm -hmm. And like his mom, he was a good artist. But unfortunately, this shared interest didn't do much in the way of making Doris pay more attention to him. The Hartman home was a staunch Catholic home. They were very religious. Phil's uncle was a priest. His aunt was a nun. The family attended Latin mass every Sunday. The kids all attended Catholic school. So you get the idea. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's very strict. And it was Phil's uncle, the priest, who told Doris and Rupert that they really needed to get Sarah into a facility that they could that could take better care of her because it was becoming such a strain on the family. Doris had actually had a mental breakdown from all the stress and ended up in the hospital for a while. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Because that's a lot. It's a lot. By this time, Sarah was five years old and Doris had had another baby. Two more would follow over the next few years. And Doris and Rupert agreed that it would be best if they moved Sarah into a care facility. Even after doing so, though, parental attention was still scarce among the siblings because Doris was having more babies and both parents were working constantly. So the kids were left to their own devices. The older kids were often getting into mischief, but Phil, for the most part, stayed out of trouble. His younger brother, Paul, later said, quote, he knew what he had to do to achieve what he wanted, and he adhered to the rules and conditions as much as possible and just did it. He never put himself in jeopardy. That was part of his philosophy. It wasn't necessary to do that to have fun. So he was a pretty good kid. There was one time, though, where Doris, she had tethered <laughs> Phil and Paul to the clothesline outside so they wouldn't run <laughs> off. This is apparently something she did often when she had to go inside for a while. I'm not sure why she wasn't just like, hey, kids, come inside with me. No, let me tie you to this pole. And leave you there. <laughs> so the kids are tied up. Doris is inside for a while. And she asks Nancy, the oldest, to go out and check on them. And when Nancy went outside, there's little Paul tied to the clothesline. And there's Phil's little bathing suit attached to the rope, but no <laughs> Phil. He had wiggled his way out of it and went running down the street completely naked, free as a bird. He was like, "Woo! I'm free. I'm Houdini. I'm out. He was probably around six years old at the time. <laughs> he, was, he was 27. It was actually just a few <laughs> years before he passed. There wasn't a ton of stuff to do in Brantford. But there was one movie theater, and it was here that he saw Moby Dick with Gregory Peck. He was around seven or eight at the time. And this movie and Gregory Peck's performance really had an impact on young Phil. He was best friends with one of the kids next door, and the two of them would act out scenes from the movie. And Mike the dog played the role of the whale, and they'd use a <laughs> broomstick to pretend to, to pretend to harpoon him. <laughs> that's uh that's that was the start of his creativity i suppose <laughs> phil also wandered into his friend's house one morning this was a time and a place where everyone left their doors unlocked so he just strolls in one morning they're all sitting around the table eating breakfast they're all silent and he says good morning all you beautiful people 
and they burst out laughing. And he had just heard someone say that on the radio and he thought it was funny. But then they're all laughing and he was like, oh, I kind of like that. Yeah. Your first taste. Your first taste. You never forget. He never really had dreams of being a star. He said he didn't have the confidence for that. But what he did want was to be noticed and to be appreciated. His dad was gone a lot as traveling salesman. His mom was busy with her work and all the kids. And for little Phil, he thought that Sarah Jane's condition was his fault somehow. Because when you're a young kid, you're the center of your universe. Mm -hmm. You view the situations around you through a lens of how does this relate to me? What is my involvement in this? And she was the baby that came right after him. So I do think mm-hmm. he felt some weird, like, not weird, but um, some kind of guilt. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be hard not to, I think. Especially when you're that young. Yeah. Being a witness to everything Sarah was going through left him in a state of constant worry. And he later said he felt a lot of shame about it. It left him really confused as a kid. And I mean, back then, you know, he didn't have the tools to process those feelings. Once Doris and Rupert put Sarah Jane in a care facility, they felt this was the time to make their move to the United States. And they actually left Sarah Jane behind. Really? Yeah. And I could not find any information as to what happened to her after this. Really? So I'm not sure there was much of a relationship there. Mm. So at the age of eight, Phil moved with his family They first stayed in Maine, then Connecticut, before finally heading west to California. The Hartmans settled in Garden Grove, just four miles from Disneyland. And when Phil saw Disneyland, his world blew wide open. It really catered to his artistic side. And Disney is where his love of art blossomed. He fell in love with cartooning and all of Walt Disney's drawings. So he would do drawings in the style of Disney and then make stories out of them. Kind of like a comic strip, Uh but not really, but kind of. And he put a lot of time and care into his art because he was passionate about it. He was equally as passionate about nature. He became a Boy Scout. Shout out to the Boy Scouts. Eagle Scout represent. (laughs) And one of their activities was a camping trip on Catalina Island. Catalina is a one-hour ferry ride from shore. It's a great day trip if you live out there. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of history there. Marilyn Monroe lived there at one point. The Chicago Cubs used to do their spring training there. There are some really cool tours you can take. Plus, you're on an island. It's beautiful. And Phil fell in love with it. Catalina wine mixer? I mean. Okay. (laughs) You don't know the Catalina wine mixer? No. It's from Step Brothers. It's, it wasn't a thing. And then Step Brothers made up this thing called the Catalina Wine Mixer for the movie. And now they have a Catalina Wine Mixer that I'm pretty sure is a yearly event. Wait, seriously? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. That's amazing. Uh, no, I was not aware of that. <laughs> Catalina would become an extremely important place for Phil throughout his entire life. California also introduced Phil to the world of surfing. He started surfing when he was about 13, and he was great at it. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, yeah. He was a big-time surfer. Being able to go to the beach early in the morning, get in the water, it was a favorite pastime of his and really nurtured his appreciation of the outdoors. Eventually, the family moved north to Los Angeles, which is where Phil attended high school. 
And by the time he entered Westchester High, he'd figured out that he was pretty good at doing different dialects and impersonations. And when he did these, it got him laughs and people noticed him. And that's really all he ever wanted was just to be noticed. He became good friends with a student there named Sparky Holloway. Sparky was the high school football star, and he played the straight man to Phil's comedic characters. The president at the time was Lyndon Johnson, so Phil would impersonate him a lot, and Sparky uh-huh. would play someone interviewing the president, and they would just, they'd have their bits that they did, you know. Yeah. Phil also liked to impersonate John Wayne, so he'd walk around school with this John Wayne swagger and then have Sparky pick him up and swing him around. Sparky was a big guy. And then Phil would do some sort of pratfall or something where he'd crash into a pole and then jump up and in his John Wayne voice be like, I'm okay, you can't take me down. And his classmates loved him. Another good friend of his was a girl named Lynn. She really liked Phil. They had drama class together. She said, quote, I have somewhere my yearbooks with Phil's writings and a little cartoon surfer he drew. We took drama together for 18 months or two years, and we had fun. He was more supportive than competitive and so enthusiastic that it was fun to go to class with him. Lynn's full name is Lynette Frome. She would later be known as Squeaky Frome. Oh, shit. One of Charles Manson's followers who also tried to assassinate Gerald Ford. Oh, damn. Which just goes to show you that Phil was able to insert himself into any group and fit right in. He was really popular and he loved to make them laugh because it got him attention. Yeah. And he was desperate for that. He didn't get that at home. And it will come as no shock. He was voted class clown. So he was always on. He was always performing. But the thing about that was his friends said it was hard to get to know the real Phil. He didn't like to talk about himself. If he was hanging out with friends, they'd be like, wait, are you Phil right now? Are you being a character? Like people couldn't really distinguish between the two. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really turn it off when he was at home either. His parents had a collection of records, which included comedians like Jonathan Winters, Bob Newhart, Shelley Berman. And Phil would go into the family room where they kept the record player close all the doors so he could be by himself, and he would just sit and listen to these records over and over and study them. So they had a huge influence on his career. In college, he began taking art classes in painting and drawing. He had a real natural talent for it. And in a public speaking class, he met fellow student Wink Roberts. The two of them became great friends. They would always compete with each other to see who could make their fellow classmates laugh the most. Everyone, including Wink, said Phil was just such a joy to be around. He wasn't happy unless he was making you laugh. Sidebar, there's some amazing names in this podcast. Wink, Hubert. uh, Sparky. Sparky. Just hats off to the names in this episode. Well done. Well done, names. Good job. Mike the dog. And don't forget about the teddy bear, Jackie. Yeah. 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 Wink and Phil used to take a lot of trips together. They'd go sailing to Catalina. They'd go surfing. And in an interview, Wink recalls one of his favorite trips. They went up to Mammoth Mountain in California to go skiing. And there's a place up there called Hot Creek. It's a geothermically heated pool well over 100 degrees. So one night, 
they go down a hot creek and there was a layer of fog probably four feet high from the surface of the pool so that when you were sitting in the water, you could not see anything, couldn't see another soul, couldn't even see your own hand if you held it in front of your face. Ooh, spooky. But you could hear the voices of everyone in the pool. Wink said it was probably at least a hundred voices. It's a This is a long pool slash creek. Yeah, yeah. And Wink says, Phil, do John Wayne. So Phil starts <laughs> doing his John Wayne impression. And after a minute or so, the voices right next to him start to quiet. And Phil keeps going. He's doing Jack Benny. He's doing Lyndon Johnson. And you can hear more voices stop as they begin listening to him. Phil is just pulling out all his hits. And eventually everyone, all 100 plus people, have stopped their own conversations to listen to this voice. They can't see him. And he's got them wrapped for two hours. <laughs> Phil put on a show. Oh, my Lord. And after two hours, Wink said, that was Phil Hartman, ladies and gentlemen. He's going to be a big star one day. Wow. Imagine if you were one of the people in the pool that night in this sea of fog to be able to say, I was there when Phil Hartman did his first stand-up routine. <laughs> when he did two hours at a hot spring. <laughs> so really a sit-down routine. Yeah, yeah. Phil was getting a little restless at college, though. He was ready for a change of pace. He was ready for a change of scenery. So he decided to drop out of Santa Monica City College and planned to move to Hawaii. He was going to transfer to the University of Hawaii, and his whole plan was to surf and teach art. That was his dream. So he goes to his family and he's like, hey, Hartmans, I'm ready to peace out. I'm moving to Hawaii. And his older brother, John, was devastated. He was really close to Phil and he didn't want him to leave. Uh -huh. It was 1969. Phil was 20 and John was around 28. And John had already done pretty well for himself. He was a manager for a few different musical acts and he was pretty successful. So he says to Phil, hey. Stay here on the mainland and come work for me. I'm working with this new band called The Rockin' Foo, and you could be a roadie. The Rockin' Foo. To clarify, The Rockin' Foo is not Foo Fighters. I, I assumed as much. I mean, yeah, you can tell by the year, but I just want to put that out there. So Phil was like, okay, sure, that sounds badass. So the brothers toured all over the country with the band, and Phil would set up their amplifiers and do whatever else roadies do. He smoked a lot of weed. He hung out with a lot of musicians. He surfed. He was living. He's meeting people like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. Buddy Miles was playing drums for Jimi Hendrix. And one night he had an issue with his drum. So here comes Phil Hartman out on stage and he holds Buddy Miles' kick drum during the set while Jimi Hendrix is playing. Cool. Mind you, Phil's like... 20. <laughs> then they all moved to Malibu together, Phil, John, and the Rockin' Foo, to this huge compound where Phil had his own, it's described as a cabana, but I imagine it was more protected from the elements than that, like maybe a little bungalow or something. Mm -hmm. Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman lived next door on one side, and Larry Hagman lived on the other. This was just <laughs> a row of celebrities, like all up and down the beach. Amazing. Phil and Larry Hagman 
smoked a lot of pot together <laughs> in Larry Hagman's hot tub. The theme of this episode is hot tubs. So wow. this this was before Dallas, but right as I Dream of Jeannie was just wrapping up. So Larry Hagman was sitting on top of the world at this point. And Phil was sitting right next to him, smoking a joint. Here, do you want to hear my Larry Hagman impression? Yes, I didn't know you had one. <laughs> I, I have. It's not great, and it's very short. Here it goes. Okay. Shut him down. Shut him all down. I'll tell you what, Sue Ellen. <laughs> That's it. That's all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably going to get it out. Oh, <laughs> go support my art. Oh, my gosh. I do support your art. Uh, just wait till later because there is an impression you're going to be doing later in this episode. I'm going to okay. request it. And I, okay, you already enough. know what it is. Oh, do I? So okay. I think I know. Yeah. So Phil would be there in the hot tub doing his comedy routines and have Larry Hagman just dying with laughter. Another neighbor of Phil's had a daughter named Gretchen. And Phil and Gretchen started hanging out a lot. The two were opposites. Phil was this free-spirited surfer dude who smoked pot and hung out with musicians. And Gretchen was just quieter, very smart, very lovely, but she was more reserved. And in the spring of 1970, the two got married. Phil was 21 and Gretchen was 20. Wow. But just as quickly as he fell in love, he fell out of it. And unfortunately, the marriage didn't last. The two were divorced just two years later. Phil's roadie gig had also come to an end, but he continued working for his brother at John's management firm, this time as a graphic designer. His business card read, Philip E. Hartman, graphic design, photography, avocado sandwiches. <laughs> he would design layouts for magazines, he'd do advertising, and he also designed album covers, like a lot of album covers for bands. Phil designed the Crosby, Stills, and Nash logo. Really? He also designed a bunch of covers for a band called Poco. The most well-known is probably the cover for their album Legend. It's all white with a line drawing of a horse done kind of like in brush strokes. It's very simple. It looks so cool. I'm going to post a picture of it. Yeah. It was Phil's favorite album that he designed. He also designed covers for the band America. They had that song... You see, I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. Uh-huh. Yep. So he did, he did a lot of their covers. But the thing with graphic design is that it's pretty solitary. Phil had his own office. He worked alone for the most part. And even though musicians were always coming in and out and he could interact with them, it just wasn't enough. He was craving a more social, creative outlet. Then one night in 1975, he attended a friend's birthday party. The group went to go see a performance at a new little startup company called The Groundlings. The Groundlings is an improv and sketch comedy group, and they had just opened their doors the previous year, so it was very new. So Phil is sitting in the audience watching the show, and he is having the time of his life. He's captivated. And the performers on stage ask for a volunteer from the audience. Phil jumps up and runs on stage. I don't even think he raised his hand. He was just like, me. <laughs> he had so much enthusiasm. He gets up there. He's doing impressions. The audience is wowed by him. He's blowing everyone on stage out of the water. He was incredible. 
as soon as he got off stage, the director went up to him and said, hey, you want to join the company? Uh, yeah. It was like a light switch turned on for Phil. He just knew he had to do this. It would be fun. It would be social. He'd be able to express himself. This was the outlet he was looking for. Pretty much right away, Phil was the star of the Groundlings. He was fearless on stage. He was constantly coming up with new characters. Phyllis Katz, another uh, a member of the group, said she never saw him falter. He was always on. He was never at a loss for words on stage. The ladies loved him. He was really funny. He was cute and a genuinely sweet guy. Tracy Newman, who was another member of the group, said that most of the females there had at least one date with Phil. (laughs) He dated around quite a bit and in 1979 even appeared as a contestant on The Dating Game. The Dating Game was kind of a rite of passage for a lot of male actors back then. Uh Everyone's been on The Dating Game. Steve Martin, George Foreman. There's been a ton of people. John Hamm. He was on The Dating Game. Really? Yeah. He was on some dating game. Maybe not the original, but uh, I'm Oh, okay. Because sure. I was like, the years don't yeah. add up No, no, no. Okay. More contemporary version, I think. I see. So Phil goes on the dating game and wins. The Bachelorette picked him, but then she stood him up for the date. What? Yeah. I bet she was kicking herself a few years later. <laughs> so... Phil didn't find his next big love on the dating game, nor did he find it on stage at the Groundlings. Instead, he found her on the dance floor. At a club one night, he spotted 23-year-old Lisa Strain. And he went up to her and said, hey, can I dance with you? And she looked at him and she said, dance. And they had so much fun. They danced together. They were having a great time. And then when the music stopped, he said, thank you. And ran back to his table. <laughs> <laughs> That's something. I feel like there's a very high percentage of guys that would do that. Be like, all right, I've got just enough courage to ask you to dance and nothing more. And then, and then and it ends there. Then it's in your court and I'm out. It was in her court. And she took that opportunity to give him her number. But he didn't have a pen to write it down. So all the way back home, he just repeated her number over and over so he wouldn't forget it. He called her the very next day, and the two really connected. Lisa describes it by saying, quote, It seemed almost, I don't want to use the word faded, but we were definitely on a course together from the very beginning. A very powerful course. Lisa was awesome. She was an artist, so they had that in common. She matched Phil at his level. She was fun and quirky and outgoing, and Phil loved that. They vibed. She would go to his shows at the Groundlings regularly, and whenever she went, she'd always dress up as some character. Like one time (laughs) she dressed up as this 1940s cigarette girl with a cigarette tray and everything, and she would go all out. The Groundlings group loved her. She just seemed to fit with Phil. Things moved pretty fast between the two. She moved in with Phil just one month after meeting him. Whoa. That's kind of how he rolled. His relationships always started out super charged and electric. And once they started living together, Lisa quickly learned more about Phil. Like the fact that he really liked boats and cars and guns. He had a few firearms. And Lisa was like, 
hmm, what's up with all the guns? What's going on there? The way he described it to her was that he was just fascinated with them as machines, sort of how they were constructed, I guess. It didn't seem to be a point of contention for them. It was kind of like, okay, I'm learning about this person. Let me process that. Okay, moving on. But even as they were in this getting to know you phase, Lisa, like Phil's former classmates, found it hard to get through to the real Phil, the Phil behind all the characters. She absolutely loved seeing him on stage, though, because she could tell he was in his element there. He had a way of embodying every character he did. He just became that person. Phyllis Katz, who I mentioned earlier, was teaching a class at the Groundlings that Phil was taking, and she gave them an assignment to create a hero or a villain. And out of this assignment was born Chick Hazard, this 1940s noir detective, very Dick Tracy-like. It became one of Phil's most famous characters. He loved old Hollywood, and this was his homage to that era. Phil's first appearance upon the big screen was as Chick Hazard in a Cheech and Chong movie. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah. In his personal life, Phil and Lisa were busy falling in love. They took a lot of trips together, including out to Catalina Island, which was a big deal because that was a sacred place for him. That was his place to escape. So for him to bring her along was his way of letting her in and get a little closer to him. And Lisa said they used to make up skits and just be so silly together So when they were at Catalina Island, Phil was like, okay, we're going to pretend that the boat is out of control and that we're about to crash. And let's take these photographs. So they staged these photos. I might try to post it on our Instagram stories. So like the first one, he's like driving the boat. And the second one, you know, he's losing control of it. Then he's screaming. Then he's falling off the back of the boat. And then the last picture (laughs) is her like leaning over the boat, trying to save him. She was always a team player with him. When I say she was on his level, that's what I mean. She was up for anything. If he said, hey, let's stage a crazy boat crash, she was like, okay, great. I'll get the camera. (laughs) But Lisa was bothered by the fact that Phil seemed to keep her at a distance to some extent. I've watched a couple of interviews with her. She's awesome. She knows exactly who she is. And she says what really hurts her heart is that Phil never did the work to get to know himself. Mm. Despite this emotional distance, the relationship continued to grow. Tim Stack, a Groundlings member at the time, said they always looked crazy in love. He said they found a real groove in being creative together, and they were super hot for each other. And I'm going to post a picture of the two of them. They are so cute together. Phil asked Lisa to marry him multiple times, at least once every two weeks. But she kept telling him, we're not ready. It's too soon. And that went on for about a year. Oh, my gosh. He kept asking her to marry him. She kept saying no. And then one day, they're out driving somewhere. They're in the car. And she just thought, I love this man. I want to be with him. Why not? So she turned to him as he was driving and took his hand. And she said, if you ask me to marry you again, I won't say no. And he went, whoa, and got off at the next exit, pulled over on the side of the road, got out of the car. She gets out of the car. He proposed to her right there on the sidewalk. Oh, my gosh. The two were married poolside on December 18th, 1982. They didn't have any money, so it was a really small ceremony, just close friends and family. And she said it was really romantic and lovely. Phil provided all the entertainment. He's like doing a whole comedy routine as he's cutting the cake. They just had a really fun time. 
A few weeks later, they held a reception at their home for more of their friends, one of whom was Paul Rubens. He was a frequent collaborator of Phil's at the Groundlings, and he often played the villain in the Chick Hazard sketches. Phil and Paul became writing partners and began working on some characters together. Once again, Phyllis Katz taught a class and the students had to come up with some character and Phil and Paul created Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman became one of the most popular characters at the Groundlings and other members of the group began collaborating with Paul. Phil came up with the character Captain Carl, a pirate who was Pee Wee's pal, and he was dynamic when he came on stage. So they decided to put this show together, the Pee Wee Herman show, and it was a hit. There were lines around the block. One of the Groundlings members was a friend of Ed Begley Jr., and she told him, Ed, you gotta come see the Pee Wee Herman show. Ed said he instantly fell in love with Phil Hartman and Paul Rubens and everyone in that show. They were getting huge audiences, so huge that they had to move it to the Roxy Theater, which was a larger venue. It was becoming apparent to everyone that something big was going to happen with this show. There was so much buzz around it. Word reached the bigwigs at HBO. They decided to film the performance one night and air it as a TV special. The HBO producers did. After it aired on HBO, there was a lot of talk among producers of where can we take this next? And the answer to that question was a feature film. So Paul and Phil, who together had created Pee Wee Herman, along with the third writer, Michael Barhall, began writing a Pee Wee movie. I'm wrapped because like, I'm so interested in this because I've heard... I've heard a little bit about the origins of, of Pee Wee, but some of this is news to me and I'm, I'm loving it. Okay, great. Pretty much immediately, Phil's marriage to Lisa took a downward turn. Phil began to withdraw from her. He was fully focused on his work with Paul and his work at the Groundlings, and he told her she was an energy drain. He said she was a black hole and that she should just leave and go be creative on her own. Oh, no. I feel like he got a little taste of the twinkling Hollywood lights and was like, I'm moving up in this world and I don't need you. I also think he just didn't like being vulnerable. Mm. And in order to have an honest relationship with someone, you have to be willing to be vulnerable. But he didn't want that. He just wanted to focus on work. Phil hated conflict. And this drove Lisa crazy. He avoided deep discussions, and when you're married, you're going to need to have some deep discussions. So when things would get too intense for Phil, he would just shut down and go to the bedroom and fall asleep. Lisa said you could not rouse him. It was like someone had pulled a plug. He just went unconscious. It was maddening. The last straw came on their one-year anniversary. They went to Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara's beautiful and, you know, it's you're, you're celebrating and you've been together for a year and it's a big deal. So Lisa had gone out and bought some new lingerie. She wanted to get a little something, something for her man. Uh-huh. So she puts on this little outfit and walks into the bedroom. He's lying on the bed and she jumps on the bed and climbs on top of him. And he looked at her and said, must you really? Oof. And she said, no. And she changed out of the lingerie. She put on a robe, got out a book to read, 
and she knew that was the end. Oh man, what a first of all, that's horrible, but how fast like a year? That's so fast yeah. to go from yeah. where they started to that. I mean, that's that's crazy. It's really sad because and just spoiler alert, Lisa's going to play a part in part two as well. But mm-hmm. I really feel like she was his match. And mm-hmm. I think that scared him. And I think it was a time of his life where he just wasn't ready for that. He wasn't great at relationships. He didn't want to do the work. But she, I mean, if you listen to interviews of her, she's an awesome lady. Oh, man, that's sad. Professionally, things were going well for Phil. The Pee Wee script sold to Warner Brothers for $150,000. He was ecstatic because this is like the first real money he's starting to make. Mm -hmm. Phil attributed his success partly to the fact that he had dropped the second N from his last name. His birth name is Hartman with two N's, and he changed it to just one. He was a big believer in numerology. He had been for a long time. And he wanted to attract a different energy. Dropping the second in allowed him to become the number of creativity, which is three. I don't know much about numerology, so I don't know how the number of letters in your name relate to another number. Yeah, I don't know that either. Like, I don't know how Phil Hartman with one in equals three. Someone listening does, I'm sure. It's not us. (laughs) I thought this was interesting because the number three also played a factor in the Viper Room. I didn't mention it in that episode, but there is a whole podcast about the Viper Room and the number three. So people do believe in the power of numbers, and Phil was one of those people. Hmm. Almost immediately after he changed his name, he booked his first commercial, which was for Toyota, and then he got a pilot. And then the Pee-wee script sold. Things are popping. Things are popping. But I don't personally think it was the name change for him. I just think work begets work. And momentum is a real thing, especially in Hollywood. But that's just me. The better things went for Phil professionally, the more he pulled away from Lisa. The pair officially divorced in 1985. Phil hated failure of any kind. So the end of his marriage was really upsetting to him. Three months after their divorce was finalized, the Pee-wee movie was released. It was, of course, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You love it. You love it so much. I mean, it's a top five film for me. Uh, as a comedy fan, It that movie is amazing in terms of how evergreen it has managed to stay. Mm-hmm. I mean, the shelf life for most comedies is exceedingly small. You have to really, really understand the dynamics and structures of comedy to create a comedy that continues to be funny decades after it was released. You know, we we watched it with some friends like, I don't know, last two years ago, maybe. Yeah. Still really, really funny. Those bits hold up. I mean, it's it's a, a testament to great comedy writing. I love that movie. And that is in large part due to Phil Hartman. Yep. And when you look at that movie, it's pretty dark. It's about a theft. There's a scene with Large Marge. He goes to the biker bar. (laughs) All of that stuff was Phil. He had a dark side to his humor that he didn't often showcase. This is where your big moment is, Matt. Are you ready for it? Oh, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. Do it. Which one should I do? All of them. All of them? Yes. Okay. Oh, really? Where are they hosing them down? That's my favorite line. What Pee-wee is 
going to Francis's house when he finds out Francis has perhaps stolen the bike. And uh, there's there's a there's a bevy of great one-liners. <laughs> oh, really? I don't make monkeys. I just train them. I think your Pee Wee Herman impression is on point. Thank you. Thank you. I um, spent many hours as a child working <laughs> on that impression. Um, what else do I love? Uh, oh, I love the whole... <laughs> the whole visit with the gypsy is amazing. It's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Um, tell me why I'm here first. You're here because you want something. And then he takes out all those crumpled <laughs> bills and puts them on the table. Where's my bike? It's in the Alamo. The Alamo? In the basement. The basement. Thank you, Madam Ruby. I'll never forget you. (laughs) And he leaves. It's just a brilliant movie. It's my favorite impression that you do. I mean, it's it's pretty much the only one you have. You you claim to have Larry Hagman, but I don't I don't know that you have that one. I don't know. I mean, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I I can do. you know, we'll do another podcast devoted to my impressions, and then you know you'll find out what I'm capable of. Oh, okay. <laughs> Back to the episode, listeners. If you would like an episode just <laughs> devoted to me doing impressions for Kate that she has maybe <laughs> maybe heard before, maybe not heard before, uh, oh. just send an email uh, to horrorwoodpodcast uh, at gmail.com and let her know that that's something you need in your life. I'll be on the edge of my seat checking that inbox. All right. (laughs) Pee-wee's Big Adventure came out on July 26, 1985 and was a huge hit. The film helped launch the careers of Paul Rubens and director Tim Burton, but not Phil. His role in the film was downsized to basically just a quick cameo at the end. He never felt he got the credit he was due for helping to create the character of Pee-wee and to develop the movie into what it became. So he's at a low point in his life. He's newly divorced. He's not getting the accolades and attention that his buddy Paul Rubens is getting. And at this point in his life, he'd been with the Groundlings for a full decade. And in typical Phil fashion, he was getting restless. He wanted a change. He wanted something new. And it looked like he just might get it. The bigwigs from Saturday Night Live, Lauren Michaels included, were in the audience one night for a show at the Groundlings. It wasn't the first time SNL had been there scouting for talent, but it was the first time since Pee-wee's Big Adventure had hit theaters. And this was the year Lauren Michaels was taking over again as executive producer after a five-year hiatus. Mm-hmm. The buzz around the group was that this was Phil's year. Even though his part in the film had been small, he was one of the creative forces behind it. The folks at SNL already knew Phil. They'd watched him at the Groundlings for years. So it seemed pretty obvious that they would ask him to come audition for the show. But they didn't. Instead, they selected Groundlings member John Lovitz. It was another blow to Phil. And this is all happening in the same year. His divorce... Pee-wee's Big Adventure, SNL chooses Lovitz over him, so he's at a low point. Then a producer friend of his invited him to a party he was throwing. Phil's like, you know what? A party is exactly what I need right now. It'll be fun. It'll be good to get out, see some folks. So Phil attends, 
And it was there he met a tall, attractive blonde woman named Bryn Omdahl. The two immediately hit it off. And that's where we're going to end part one. Dun, dun, dun. In part two next week, we're going to get into their relationship. We'll talk a little bit about Bryn's background, Phil's career, and, of course, his untimely death. I'm excited. And I I learned so much that I didn't know. And there's a lot that makes sense now. I start to understand. Like, his reputation at SNL was that of, you know, they called him the glue. He was the guy yep. that kind of kept everybody together. And he helped a lot of people other cast members with their problems and their hangups. Yep. And he was just like, they called him the glue for a reason. And, and I think we're going to talk uh, about it in the next. Yeah. Part. Okay. So I'll shut up. But, um, <laughs> but hearing about his family and about, you know, some of the dynamics of his upbringing. Yeah. You understand how he came by those skills. Yeah. I like to give as much backstory as I can. Some people really hate it. They've like, we've gotten comments about it. Like, why are you talking so much about who they used to be? You talk about the murder. And I'm like, <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, we'll get there. Relax. I mean, I feel like that's a part of what... If you like true crime, I feel like you have to have an interest in humanity and in the stories of these people because otherwise it's just so horrific and it's so terrible that there's no reason to invest in it. So I I feel like that's, for me at least, you know, I'm, I'm not as much of a true crime fan as you are, but I, you know, I'm a casual fan. And to me, that's what hooks me is I'm interested in the person and I, I know something about them already. I'm pretty sure we'd all like to remember how we lived as opposed to just how we died. I I just feel like that's kind I mean, there's a lot said about true crime of, is it ethical to talk about this kind of stuff? I, I don't really see it as, oh, we're talking about death it's we're telling these stories about people's lives and there's a reason that we care that they died Mm -hmm. but tell me what you think if you hated this let me know (laughs) leave it in the comments (laughs) (laughs) and matt we'll see you back next week for part two yes you'll see me i mean you'll hear me you won't see me but i'll be back truth Tell him Large Marge sent ya. <laughs> That's the one I was waiting for.